0: Uh, My name is Dr. David Henderson, and I'm a lecturer in the Employment Relations and Organizational Behavior uh, Department in the Department of Management. And tonight, I'd like to welcome you to the event that's being hosted by the Department of Management. Uh, Tonight, we're pleased to have as our guest Dr. Michael O'Malley, who is the Executive Editor of Business, Economics, and Law at Yale University Press. Uh, where he's published uh, several award-winning books such as The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism, Good Capitalism, Bad Capitalism, and Nudge. And tonight he's here to talk to us about his latest book, The Wisdom of Bees, which shows us what managers can learn from bees about decision-making, negotiation, communication, and other topics. Um, We are recording this event tonight, and we hope that it will be made available via podcast. The schedule for tonight is that Michael is going to talk for about 30 to 40 minutes, after which time we'll have about 20 to 25 minutes of question and answer. And following the event tonight, Michael will be available uh, outside to sign copies of the book, which are available tonight for purchase. So with no further ado, I give you Dr. Michael O'Malley.
1: Hi, right, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, for some of you who are students, my ultimate aim is that someday when you're in the boardroom, uh, a very nice boardroom with uh, exclusive uh, illustrative peers and you uh, don't know the answer to a question, I want you to raise your hand and ask, you know, what would a B do in this situation? Um, so I'm going to talk for like, uh, for 30 or 40 minutes we'll have, I cannot, cover everything there is to know about bees, but we do have ample time for questions and answers um, uh, at, you know, covering things that we won't cover. If I were to give this talk uh, a name, it would be Innovation in the Hive, which is a paradoxical, uh, uh, you know, title given that bees for over 100 million years have produced the same product, uh, uh, honey. But you have to give an organization that turns over every six weeks and has managed to thrive and survive all of that time a little bit of credit. So their innovation really is in business continuity uh, and in their really uncanny ability to adapt to circumstances. The um, There's four things, now there are are a lot of elements to what bees do, uh, but I've condensed them for this talk into what I would call four sort of meta-principles, the four things that I think bees do that make them so successful. And those four things are, and we'll cover each, is uh, they have common goals and interpersonal trust, they uh, protect the future, they are a decentralized organization and they're extremely effective at managing risk. So common goals, protecting the future, decentralized uh, authority uh, and organization, effective at managing risk. Now when I write like blogs or uh, articles, if I get a negative comment from anyone, it's usually of the ilk. Yeah, you know, but bees are not humans. And I can generally concur with that. You know, bees are smaller, they can fly unassisted, and that sort of thing. Uh, but bees, uh, as some introductory material for you, can do a whole lot more uh, than you think, uh, than, than you might think. Uh, for instance, they can count only up to four, but they can count. Uh, They can recognize faces and landmarks. They've got great recall. You can expose a bee to a one, you can make a one millisecond exposure to a color that they can identify a day later. Uh, And then they have seventeen different communication signals, which really has given them the moniker of being honorary mammals uh, They are great communicators. And, of course, they're tremendously productive and efficient. Uh, they create 200 to uh, 300 pounds, by the way, in grade school. We were told that we were going to have to learn the metric system, but nobody ever does. But I think it's 90 to 140 kilograms of honey per year, uh, per hive, uh, and uh, one pound, half kilogram, of honey really involves the visitation of about two million flowers. So these are quite industrious animals. However, when people say that, um, that, uh, that bees are not humans, typically what they're referring to is that we have certain advantages over bees that they, that they don't have. That is, we have to work harder at certain things that bees do not. to work hard at. And I would say in in one way that's true. Uh, That is bees actually have a common purpose and that's reproduction and survival and the hive agrees with that and all the individual bees agree with that. So there's an identity between what uh, the bees want and what the group wants, which makes things a whole lot easier uh, to manage. I recently, I, I have a, a couple of friends who are writing a book on what, um, on what uh, organizations can learn from uh, mutinies, which should be an interesting book, and what they wrote to me and said they found in the Royal Belgian uh, Archives a letter from the mutineers to the uh, Spanish Netherlands with the words mens adem omnibus on it. We are all of one mind and the ornate seal had a swarm of bees on it, and that was dated from 1590. So all of one mind does help the bees uh, quite a bit. Now, that isn't to say, and if you wanna ask questions about it later, that there isn't dissension in the hive, because there is. There are occasions when uh, individual bees do act on their own initiative against the will of the group. Hives have a police force, believe it or not, that actually sanction these individuals and bring them back into uh, the fold, so to say. So there are sanctions that uh, promote cooperative behavior in the hive in those occasions when individual bees are actually acting in their own interest rather than the interest of the hive. Well, this, common, this commonality also makes trust a whole lot easier as well, and there are many examples. By the way, I don't want to anthropomorphize the bees, and I try very hard in the book not to do that, not to, um, not to um, attribute mental states to bees that you know they truly don't have, but so I use trust in the sense that it looks like trust to us if we were looking at it, and there are lots of examples. So for example, when a, a bee visits a particular flower that has nectar, and extracts it, uh, it, will, uh, it will abandon that particular flower. But for an occasion, it will check back periodically to see if conditions have changed, just to make sure that you know the nectar is really gone before finally abandoning the patch and going back to the hive and looking for something else. Well, it could be when that bee returns to the hive that they see another bee communicating to it that you should go back to, to this very place that you just left. Now, the bee doesn't look at this new, you know, this new informer and say, you know, I was at that spot and there's nothing there, which the organizational corollary of that would be, you know, we've, you know, we've tried that before, it doesn't work. Uh, instead, what the bee does is it goes because having a common objective There's no reason for a sister, and they're mostly sisters and half-sisters. As you know, the beehive is mainly female. Uh, There's no reason for one sister to deceive another if we all want the same thing. Now, uh, yes, so... They don't have the transaction costs that we have in terms of mixed motives and interpersonal uh, dissension and disagreements and discord and lies and betrayal and that sort of thing. However, that's why organizations spend time on fashioning vision statements and, uh, uh, and uh, mission statements and hiring people who subscribe to the purpose of the organization and so forth. These are necessary things for organizations to do, harder, true but still necessary because I, I would be hard-pressed to call it an organization if you had disparate um, uh, purposes and uh, had rampant distrust within the organization. So it's one of the essentials and one of the things that bees have and it makes everything else quite easy for, easier for them. Now the other three things that bees have that I think really promote their effectiveness, again, is they protect the future, they're decentralized, they moderate risk. Now, protecting the future comes in various shapes and sizes. I think the most, uh, the, the Belgian-born uh, Nobel laureate, uh, Maurice Meiterlinck once said, the god of the bee is the future. So the most evident uh, uh, and obvious aspect of protecting the future is that when a hive discovers a lucrative vein of nectar, they don't all rush off and mine it, no matter how, how enriched that vein might be. So it's not like they are not running off to uh, gorge themselves on, let's say, high-risk subprime mortgages. They, um, what they do instead is that they're, the way they operate is that they will concentrate resources on that particular vein but they always have an exploratory force out looking for the next new thing, always. And interestingly enough, the worse conditions get, the greater they, the investment they put in, um, in exploration. So their R&D investment increases inversely with how good conditions are. But they always have an R&D capacity. I did a, uh, a talk this afternoon um, at at Bloomberg, and one of the uh, questions was that, but isn't that counter to what, you know, we often find? You know, so sometimes we're often, I remember a, uh, working with a bank executive who had to defend himself with his board by saying, why aren't you out buying these subprime mortgages and uh, making all the money everybody else is? And he said, well, because I think it's a, a bad idea. I remember when Cisco Systems said that they were going to make a huge investment in R&D, and uh, John Chambers, the CEO, was just pillared by the uh, investment community, and analyst, for, for forsaking short-term awards for, you know, for the longer-term benefit. He prevailed, he made his argument, they're doing better, but still, bees have a long-term they're always on the lookout for the next new thing because they can never do without having honey or pollen coming in. If they concentrated their forces in one place uh, and that place became depleted then they would have to find the next new place and they would have to do without any income for a while. Uh, Number two, another thing that uh, they do to protect the future is that they never wear out their workforce. They, uh, they never undermine the capability of the bees, the worker bees, to work over the long term. When a bee is born into the world, the, the expectation is that it will live a long and productive, prosperous life. And the way they do that is that they do it through net versus gross energy. They are not indiscriminate revenue chasers. What they are is that they're not indifferent to the flowers that they look for. They will prefer flowers that are uh, closer to the hive, that are clustered more closely together, that are easier to manipulate and extract the nectar. What they're trying to do is preserve their wings which wear out so that they live in essence three weeks outside the hive as for foragers. So um, hives that have an average Uh, have a longer average lifespan are more productive hives. And I can give you, well, I'll give you an example in a second, but uh, curiously, there is a biologist here in town who I had the pleasure of meeting with this morning, Nigel Rain, who just, at the University of London, who just did an experiment that showed that there is a, um, there's a study called the, the Traveling Salesman, problem, and the problem is that you're given multiple um, destinations to travel to, and the object for the salesman or saleswoman is to visit all those sites using the shortest possible route without retracing your step. And what he showed is that bees solve that problem faster than a computer can, which is kind of interesting. He doesn't know how they do it yet, But he did show that they can actually calculate the shortest route and solve this traveling salesman problem a lot quicker. The idea is that the bees are trying to conserve their energy for the long run. I did a study for a major retailer about two years ago or so. And I actually showed, and this is to illustrate what longevity can do and and why the bees really want to be out in the field as long as possible. I showed the company that for, for every sales associate on the floor, they had to replace that person three times in order to keep a steady state of employees. So what happens under these conditions? Well they start hiring every warm body that walks in the door. They whisk them through training, if they give them training at all, and they put them out on the floor, and often at the worst times with the highest volumes, and so they quit and so forth, and the cycle begins. Well, what ha- the same thing happens with bees. If they die young, they actually try to produce more bees. They send them out into the world prematurely. They die young, and a vicious cycle begins, and ultimately the hive dies out. So they want to actually keep the focus on outside world rather than on internal operations. The third thing that they do to protect the future is... Um, They um, have managed out anything that interferes with the long-term performance of the group. Uh, In essence, beehives are meritocracies. Uh, There's no nepotism in the hive, no genetic favorites. The thing that matters most is productivity. If the larvae are infected uh, and have no chance of succeeding in the hive, they're thrown out. the drones, which are the males uh, of the hive. Um, I'll just say a few, let me just say a few things about the drones. The bro- drones are rather large bees. They have big eyes, bigger to see the queen with. And uh, they're very powerful flyers. Uh, and they, um, uh, during mating season, they, they uh, congregate in an area, which are called congregation areas, which you can think of as sort of a pub in the sky, and they wait for the... Uh, they wait for the queen to come along and 10 to 15 drones mate with the queen. Uh, and if they're successful, if you wanna call it that, uh, because they lose some essential inner parts during this process and die in an aerial freefall. So those that, are, those that are successful die. Uh, those that are unsuccessful return to the hive, hang out, maybe go for some leisurely flights on nice summer days, Uh, maybe figure out how to create mead from honey, but they hang out and they really don't do a whole lot. However, come fall, uh, when the workers need the honey to, to survive on through the winter, and they don't need the drones, the drones discover that if you wanna eat the honey, you have to contribute to the hive. And since they're not contributing to the hive, the workers throw them out. So uh, they're not productive, they're cast off. I know the women love this, I know. uh, And it's a one-sided affair, by the way. Workers, the female workers have stingers, drones do not have stingers. So it's not even, it's no contest. (laughs) Uh, They're thrown out. Productivity actually even even uh, relates to the queen herself. When the queen's productivity begins to decline, it is sensed by the workers. And decline for the queen means that she's starting to lay fewer eggs. On average, a queen lays 1,500 to 2,000 eggs per day. Sounds like an awful job, but uh, that's what she does. The workers sense a decline, and when that decline begins, They actually the workers begin to prepare for a successor and I would say that that is the fourth uh, uh, long-term principle that bees have and that is that they are very good at succession planning, they cannot do without a queen they will have trouble existing if they waited too long for the queen to be unproductive because it takes 30 days from inception to productivity for a queen to fully develop. That is a long time in, in, in bee years and uh, it would put the hive at risk. So they really, so succession planning is very important in the hive. To, um, I'll just say a few words about how they actually, uh, uh, su- you know, choose successors. Uh, the worker bees create 12 to 15 cells, which are a little bit larger uh, than normal. Queen lays an egg in it, fertilizes it. The queen, the, the aspiring queen, then is fed on a very rich diet of royal jelly, and, uh, which is high protein content. So basically, the food makes the woman in this case. It alters her genetic makeup, and she, they develop into queens versus workers through this now the uh the first queen out gets the job basically uh so the first one out is the most developed and the most mature uh queen she quickly dispatches with her sisters and half sisters by stinging them through their cell walls or as they're emerging so she they eliminated and the idea really is look we got we got a capable we think we have a capable person here a capable queen here Um, We don't want to engage in a lengthy process, so the first one out wins. Now, I would say that this is often different from businesses. People often ask me, are there any differences? And this would be different because in the hive, the first one there, the first in line, usually is the most mature. In business, sort of the first on the bus, you know, the next in line isn't necessarily the best one for the job. So I would, you know, so there are some differences there. Um, the uh, they wait for the queen to do her mating flight, the new queen to engage in her, her uh, mating flight, uh, and return before they uh, they keep the old queen on until the the uh, new queen returns and is productive. A lot of beekeepers see two queens in hives. Uh, I've seen it in our own hives. Uh, as long as the old queen is willing to accept emeritus status and go off to a corner and not lay eggs and not bother anyone, she will not be killed. However, if she does bother somebody, she will be dispatched with because the idea in the end is that there can only be one queen, uh, which is Which I think is interesting because at least in the United States there's been a lot of commentary lately on dual leadership and I've been involved in uh, so many of these uh, uh, occasions where most often it's uh, a merger and uh, let's say you're putting the two information technology departments together and rather than making a decision between person A and B they make them twin heads which is the worst thing you can do. If you're ever in that position, make a decision because it confuses employees, it gives them mixed messages. Uh, One decision is overridden by another. The only time I've seen dual heads work is with startups where you have founders who know each other and work together, uh, know what each other's strengths and weaknesses are, and can nicely segment their, um, uh, their responsibilities. And then I've seen it work in family businesses, too. I'm friends with the Smucker family. Uh, both of the, the, the brothers get along famously. Uh, they like each other, and they've divided up their responsibilities. So, but usually one leader is enough, and that's all the, that's all the hive will to- tolerate. Just as a quick aside, sometimes the culture of a hive becomes disadvantageous. It usually becomes susceptible to disease, or the bees can become overly aggressive. Uh, In that case, uh, you need an outsider to step in and change the bloodline of the hive. That is, the only way to change the culture is to bring in a new queen. Now in an organization, that would be the board, for instance, saying, you know, I think we need to change things, the culture isn't quite the way we want it anymore. In the hive, it's the beekeeper that decides. But I will say this, uh, if a beekeeper just puts, and I guess there are some beekeepers in here, if a beekeeper just puts a new queen into the old hive, there is a over 50% chance that she will get what's called heat bald. The workers will surround her, pressurize her, and heat her to an intolerable temperature and kill her. And the reason is that she's an unproven outsider and and an unknown. So uh, if you ever are introduced into a new company, please don't get Uh, heat-balled. And the way to avoid that, I've seen, you know, the one way to avoid that, the the way uh, beekeepers avoid it is they put the queen in a cage with like some candy uh, cork on the end. So it takes a while for the uh, the worker bees to eat through it. And so it gives time for the bees and the queen to get acclimated. Uh, acclimated to one another and and to their sense and so forth but what I've seen CEOs do is say "All right, I'm I'm gonna make a few changes immediately that are obvious to me but I'm gonna spend the first 90 days listening and then after that we're gonna get serious so you know it's sort of setting up a time that we can actually get to know one another but after this period is gone and then we'll move on so those are all the ways that uh, Hives can protect the the future. They um, they preserve their ability to perform over time, uh, their capacity to perform. Uh, they, there's no nepotism or favoritism, and they are, and they look ahead for successor uh, queens or leaders. Uh, the next thing that they that I want to mention is that, contrary to what a lot of people believe about the hive is that the queen has very little to do with the activity of the hive. The queen lays eggs, she emits pheromones that keep the workers around her from producing queens prematurely, Uh, and then she has chemical messages that she sends out. It's more like a goal-setting cascade, you know, the queen has an entourage of groomers and they actually pick up her scent and then they pass that scent on to other workers who pass it on to other workers and it spreads throughout. what this chemical conveys is that the queen is in, she's healthy and all is well in the land and you don't have to worry because when she's not there, the bees do start to worry. Uh, And there are some detrimental things that go on. So it's really to keep the hive calm knowing that the queen is in. So most of the decisions made in the hive are not made by the queen, they're made by individual workers who are closest to the action. So it is truly an empowered organization. It is almost entirely decentralized. Things from rearing the young to taking out the trash to foraging are made by individual workers based on local cues and communication. Now the perfect example of of this comes with with swarming in bees, Uh, when a hive gets, you know, a hive has a fixed capacity. Uh, It can only get, it only gets so big, it can only store so much honey and accommodate so many workers. So it gets to a point where adding workers would have nothing, they would have nothing to do. They would be bringing in honey that could not get stored and would never get consumed. So it gets to a side where big is inefficient. And when big is inefficient, they divest themselves of a, a part of them, of the, themselves. A little less than half of the hive leaves the parent colony uh, and looks for a new home. Now, if you've ever seen a um, uh, a swarm, I mean, they're very scary looking, but I mean, they're harmless. So they're like they're balls, they're great balls of bees that look like soccer balls, and they go hang on a limb somewhere. And they send out a couple of hundred scout bees to look for their new home and the new home has certain characteristics that they're looking for it has to you know be the it should be so far off the ground it should have certain cavity size the entrance size should be so large it should be facing a certain direction so they all go out and they look for this and these couple hundred bees then come back to the swarm and communicate and maybe in the question and answer, we can demonstrate how they communicate. It's their famous waggle dance is how they communicate. It tells them you know, uh, how far something is away, where, which direction to go in, and how good it is when you get there. So it's the how good that we need to know for now. So they come back, and on average, these, uh, these workers will, the average is 24 sites. They will, aver- they will advertise 24 possible sites For their new home Uh, they do they run little circles and the more circles they run the more excited they are about that particular site and it's a direct correlation between the actual properties of those sites so so the you know so the faint-hearted you know "Ah, that's kind of okay you know you might want to look at it they'll run a few circles but hey this is I, I think I found the perfect home for us they'll run a lot of circles The other bees, the other uncommitted scouts, will see these bees advertising their sites and they will go visit these various sites. They won't necessarily make an immediate commitment, all right, I'll go look at your site. They may come back and say, all right, before I make a decision, I'm gonna go look at two or three other sites as well. Well what happens over time is that a quorum (laughs) develops, that is, they all sort of coalesce on one of the one of the possible sites Uh, and that is uh, and that's and once a quorum is reached they send out signals to warm their uh, flight muscles and then they do these things called buzz runs to say all right we're moving by the way I should say they try to give these spin-offs the best chance of succeeding as possible the old queen goes with the with with the uh, spin-off with the swarm They send a disproportionate number of younger bees who have longer to live and can help the colony when it settles, uh, and they send stores of honey. So they're trying to give it the best chance possible. So they take off. So a couple of things that I want to say about this process. One is that they adhere to what I would, in management, call debate, decide, and act. So they have their debate, they make their decision, and then they act you know sort of the discussion is over we've once a quorum is reached we've made up our mind we're going to our new home period and by the way we're all going together and the way the bees do that is that they have something called streaker bees that shoot through the uh, swarm at very high rates in the direction of the new home so the bees that see the streaker bees you know follow them the bees that are following the streaker bees follow them so they actually all move together consistently to their new home. So debate, decide, act, we're all in agreement, this is where we're going. The other part of this process I think is important to management is that somewhere out in the world I'm sure is the perfect home for the bees but they cannot afford to look ad nauseum for the perfect home because they're hanging from a tree branch, they have limited reserves, Uh, They uh, are susceptible to the weather and predators, so they have to make a decision. And so the decisions that bees make are often, all they have to be is good enough decisions, not perfect decisions. So there's a difference between incomplete information and insufficient information, and they will act on incomplete but sufficient information. Uh, So um, which is important. Decisions just have to be good enough, particularly when they have to be quick decisions. Uh, there are a couple of things that make... Now, empowerment often gets a very bad name because, some t- because often, and I've seen it, you know, it's an executive that says, okay, uh, you know, I've been making too many I've been making too many uh, decisions myself um, distributing accountability you all now are accountable all right for decisions which to a lot of people you know you wonder what that means but consider why empowerment works decentralization works in the hive it works for really three reasons one uh, is that they have a very sound decision process that they use And uh, if you're interested, it's called the Collective Wisdom Hypothesis. It's uh, the Marquis de Condorcet who developed it. They remove bias from their decision-making process in two ways. One is that they actually uh, produce a range of options to to uh, assess, so it's not one person saying we're going. We're just going to we're just going to entertain these one or two options. They remove bias by sampling from a wide array of possibilities. The other way they remove bias is by having independent assessments of each of those options. So. Uh, in a company you may have, let's say it's the most you know uh, powerful person in the company saying I, we should do this and then everybody agreeing and then you have a cascade effect which may be a wrong decision. In the hive, each bee is independently making their own decision about which home is correct. So a wide set of options, independently assessed, guarantees or assures that the decision that they're going to make is as unbiased as possible. They have a great communication system. Number two, you know, not only the waggle dance, which is you know beautiful in and of itself and very succinct, but their uh, their communication system is a parallel system as well. In that you have multiple pieces coming in of information coming into the hive. It's redundant. <coughs> And the best information is always overwhelming the bad information. So you know, the more circles that they're running, that information is louder than the uh, information where somebody is harder and making fewer circles. And by the way, these, well, we don't have to get into it. But basically, if you lose some information, you'll still have another bee that likes that site. It will come in. So you have redundant information with the best information getting passed on. Communication is great in the hive. Uh, and the last thing is that they have competent workers. Um, they actually, the scouts are the oldest uh, and uh, most experienced foragers in the in the field that are sent out to find the house uh, for the n- new home. So they send their best out to look for the home who are accustomed to flying long distances, which, by the way, can be up to 12 kilometers. I mean, it's they fly great distances to find homes and food Uh, and also just as an aside you should know that bees have mentoring programs Uh, the uh, the novice uh, you become a forager at three weeks novice bees follow the veteran bees into the field to learn how to navigate better to manipulate flowers better how to move from flower to flower better and what you see are you know are learning curves over time so over time what you see is that bees are able to carry more pollen and nectar and make more trips to and from the hive with time so they're actually watching the veteran bees do this so there's a learning that goes on there's actually self-learning that goes on too but we need not get into that. The last thing, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that they do to, to mitigate risk. But I think in the time that we have, I'm going to mention one very important uh, element, and that's uh, diversity is critical in the hive. Uh, the more diverse the hive, uh, more diverse hives are better at everything. They're better at rearing the young. They're better at comb building. They're better at uh, foraging. And the reason, the, the diversity in the hive really comes from the fact that they have multiple fathers, multiple patrilines. Remember they have 10 to 12 fathers. So that's how diversity is introduced into the hive. The more diverse, the better the hive because the bees are sensitive to a wider range of cues. So for instance, in foraging, a more diverse hive will travel further. So they'll explore a wider range of area. And they will actually um, gather nectar from a greater variety of flowers. So they're more sensitive to more environmental events, which, uh, which keeps them open, uh, which prevents them from being too narrow, too narrowly focusing on too few things. But here's the other thing diversity does, which is important. And, and we introduce diversity in different ways in our organization. And there's, you know, of course, the surface characteristics, which are... I don't want to talk about but there are the other things, and that is, you know, divergent interests and hobbies and curiosities and entrepreneur. I mean, there are a lot of ways of bringing in different kinds of people who subscribe to the organizational purposes. Well, the other thing that diversity does in the hive, however, I mean, I'll just describe what happens in the hive, and then I'll tell you what the consequences are. Uh, the hive tries to keep the uh, bees keep the hive at a relatively constant temperature of 93 to 95 degrees or 34 a fahrenheit 34 to 35 degrees centigrade but they don't all and what they do is they they contract their wings to heat the hive or they flap their wings to cool it but they don't contract and flap their wings at the same time they turn on and off at different times some are doing nothing some are turning on some are turning off And the whole idea is to keep the band of temperature very narrow, because if they all turned on and off at the same time, you would start to get oscillations, and the temperatures would be too too extreme. So just by way of an analogy, just picture a a ship with all hands on deck, and all of the crew members are exactly alike. And let's just say the ship starts to tilt. being non-diverse they all respond the same way to the same cue, and so they all run to the other side of the ship and then they it tips and they run back and forth until it it uh, capsizes Mm -hmm. so the other value of diversity is diversity produces stability in the hive and that's one of the ways they protect protect themselves from uh, just quickly two other things and then and then we'll open up to questions because there are other ways that they um, That they mitigate, you know, they live in this bees live in the same unpredictable world We do and so they have to there's their theory is you know Hope for the best plan for the worst and they're always planning for the worst and they do make mistakes uh, The kinds of mistakes they make they choose they choose what kind of mistakes they're going to make So I I think that's valuable. Sometimes in business, you're going to make a mistake. What you have to decide is, what kind of mistake are you willing to make? Uh, And bees have that. And the other part of bees, which we didn't touch on, is that they have an amazing, they have a very defined career progression. You start with the easiest jobs, and the bee moves gradually out toward the periphery of the uh, hive until it becomes a forager. It's a very defined progression, but They have flexibility built into that so that they never lose a key functionality that they need so they can, for instance, accelerate development of certain bees, Uh, precocious bees, we would call them fast trackers in in business. Uh, They have slack resources that they can pull on and they also cross train uh, in the hive so that they have amazing, I call it flexigidity, it's a very, it's a rigid structure with some flexibility built into it, but it really enables them to quickly adapt to changing circumstances. So time is up, so then I thought we could open it up to questions. All right, great.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Yeah, we are going to open it up to questions. I just have uh, two things to ask of you. First, if you wouldn't mind waiting until the microphone gets to you before you ask your question. Uh, the second thing is, could you please try and ask questions and not deliver lectures back to Michael? Um, so it would be much appreciated to um, kind of just get to the question. So with that, uh, I, we have some microphones that are going to be coming around.
1: Hello, sir. Uh, hi. Hi. Uh, I want to know. According to you, what is the
2: behavioral difference between the the system, uh, the difference in system between
1: the bees and the ants? Oh. (laughs) Well, you got me there because I'm not an ant uh, expert. Uh, But, I I mean, personally, I'm more interested in in bees because uh, ants tend to follow pheromone trails, you know, and and they're more limited in terms of their movement. I mean, I'm more interested in, in bees because of the flexibility of, of movement, but I think if you asked E.O. Wilson, he would disagree with what I've just said, that the ants are, you know, very fancy. I just don't know ants well enough to comment.
0: Yes.
2: i um. What
0: company do you think most closely matches a bee colony? Hmm.
1: You know that is a very interesting question, uh, and the re- reason it's quest- uh, uh, the reason the reason you got me is because I do name that company in the uh, book, uh, and it's Johnson and Johnson. But boy, they are having so many problems now that I. Uh <laughs> <laughs> you know i had consulted them for for many years and you know they have you know they were very decentralized Uh, they had they had all the things that i discussed but boy are they having quality problems right now so i mean i named johnson and johnson in the book but uh, i I think i you know i may have to retract that i'm afraid (laughs)
0: Um, thank you very much for this insightful le- lecture. I know that you 're going to speak at the FT conference soon on innovations of um, bees. Now, um, it seems that evolution has given bees this um, incredibly diverse and efficient uh, tool set like the mentoring program and uh, the communication devices and so on um, but what it, um, but it resembles uh, routines for me uh, organizational routines that makes uh, make companies as efficient as the, the beehives that we just talked about. But what's the role
2: of innovation in, in, the, in the hive, and how do bees innovate
1: uh, to become even more efficient? They um, Did you say routines? Did you mention the idea of routines? Yes. Uh, you know, the actually, uh, the bees have uh, routines. Um, I'm trying to think of the German word that I use in the book uh, for it. The management word is entrainment. Uh, they actually have routines. They uh, um, they they're not. They don't just get up and start looking for flowers. They actually have a particular rhythm that they have. They know at what times to look for what kinds of flowers. So uh, they're very entrained to their uh, to their environment, which is one. Of the, they're routinized, which is one of the one of the ways that they are so efficient.
2: Okay, these are
0: routines, but what is the role of innovation in in, in for bees? Because this is what we're going to talk about soon at the economy. Yeah, yeah, they're
1: all about, you know, I think the innovation that uh, the bees have really is organizational innovation and not, you know, not the kind of, you know, not product innovation or anything. I think the innovation that they have is is really an ability to quickly adapt to conditions. Um, I mean, that to me is, um, you know, you can, you only have certain, um, you only have certain uh, Decision criteria. You you can adapt to the environment. You can you, you can you know so change yourself. Uh, you can get out. You know you can withdraw from the environment. So what they're very good at is deciding which you know which decisions to make and when and how fast. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yes, sir uh, I would first like to thank uh, you for your interesting presentation I'd just like to know how do bees respond when humans try to extract honey from the beehives and then during the crisis situation how do they respond
1: not well <laughs> how do they respond when they've taken out honey um, the, you know for the most part you can walk around hives and they don't bother you and i've been around you know 50 hives and walking through them and they don't bother you but you take off the lid and you try to remove a frame uh they get very angry with that they, they, they will sting you and um in those situations so you you know you use a smoker to that disorients them it actually um uh, also um, uh, confuses their, the pheromones and chemicals that they give off so it makes communication between them uh, more difficult but I will say this and you do learn it uh, maybe the hard way and that is if you get stung by a bee they uh, they give off a pheromone and that pheromone calls other bees so you start running <laughs> So I learned that, the, you know. I, so there's uh, there's all kinds of things like, uh, you know, they're not supposed to like the dark, you know. And i I remember once being chased by bees, and I'm you know running into the garage. Hey, you're not supposed to be in here. You're not supposed to be in here, you know. Uh, but, uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, but at any rate, yes, they they do attract others to uh, to the to the call per se. Yes, sir.
2: Uh, Dr. O'Malley, thank you very much for that uh, most interesting talk. Um, you brought up the, the concept of um, a common goal shared by bees. Is there any sense of competition
1: between hives? Thank between hives? Yes. Uh, they, um, uh, no, for, well, well uh, let me see how, how do I want to put this. There's a lot to answer. First of all, for the most part, no. Uh, but i will say this that each hive has a unique genetic and environmental signature built into their wax and so one hive knows where another bee comes from they know there are in groups and there are out groups even among two hives so if a bee from one hive tried to enter another hive it would be kicked out there are guard bees that would keep them out, and that's because of their, the, the scent that they have. So they're each unique. But I think you raise an interesting point, and that is you cannot just put two beehives together and expect it to work, because uh, at least one of the hives will, will throw out the bees of the other hive. So if you're ever involved in a merger, uh, for instance, it always helps to mix the wax together to create a brand new entity uh, where all feel a part of the, n- of the new place. Otherwise it doesn't work. So you cannot mix two hives together without mixing the wax. And there are some variations to that, but that is sort of the, the bottom line. And I think too often in mergers, we invite one group, invite one group over. But they're, you know, but they are uh, perceived as outsiders, and that's what happens in the hive. Yes. Thanks. Um, I'm wondering
0: under what circumstances do. Individual bees actually lose their coordination or subordination to the common goal. You mentioned it earlier on. And second of all, how is that dealt with? Uh, how is that dealt with? Sorry, are they just killed, or can they be like re-educated
1: somehow? W- which bees being killed? The ones,
0: the ones that uh, lose
1: their sort of subordination to the common goal. Can they be re-educated, uh, or uh, okay. do they just get killed? Um, mm-hmm. There are a couple of things. One is that um, the, the way the um, uh, two things, the way they uh, communicate primarily is on, is on the dance floor of the, um, of the hive, which is always vertical, so that's where the action is taking. I will say that they have a unique, what I would call an RSS feed uh, in the hive, because the honeycomb is actually has a little lip and the bees will flick that lip and they'll send out a low frequency signal through the hive that signal travels the furthest, uh, the more distal a bee is. Right? So if a bee is standing on the periphery, what the signal is saying, come over here and see what's being said, you're too far away. You're not getting the message. So they actually do have a, a very sophisticated knowledge management system that brings all the bees together where they can actually see and coordinate with one another. Now, in terms of, uh, they try not to kill the, the the individual. Some some worker bees have um, functional um, ovaries, and they can lay eggs. Uh, it's particularly when the queen is absent that they actually start doing. You know that that actually accelerates. But they will individual bees will start laying eggs. These are unfertilized eggs They can only develop into males. It's a very bad thing for the colony. And so what the the police force does is it stops them from laying eggs and destroy, and then will destroy the eggs. Um, So that's how they actually keep keep these sort of these uh, individualistic uh, bees in, in in track. They don't they don't kill the bees. They will stop they will stop them and destroy their eggs, basically.
0: Yes, sir.
1: Hello, Uh, you have said that uh, during crisis time the bees actually increase the investment in their R&D okay today we are still living in a crisis and biggest companies have cost reduction laying off a lot of people even the most competent ones because they want to reduce cost you have an example of a company that had increased investment in R&D during crisis and now they are having much better business thanks to that Though all competitors maybe have reduced their cost So, are there examples of uh, R&D expenditures where the companies have done better? Is that? I mean, yeah. During crisis, one of the companies said, "Okay, we will not reduce cost. Opposite, we will increase dramatically the R&D." And maybe after two years, the outcome was really positive compared to the others. Yeah, I'm not sure if there are any companies that wouldn't have tried to reduce costs, but they would introduce, you know, but they would increase their R&D nonetheless, because uh, you know there are always ways you can cut. Cost. Now, whether or not, I think we're going to have to see whether or not it succeeds. You know, the, the uh, companies that I mentioned in the book that have maintained or increased um, R&D investment during the downtime is uh, 3M and Intel or two of them. Cisco, I already mentioned, is another. I think we have to, to wait to see if those investments actually pay off or not. But all of them have tried to cut costs in other ways, just not in research and development.
0: Yes, sir. Uh,
2: as, as I understand it, the, the reason that the division of labour and <clears throat> all of the positive manage- biological management in a systems work so well is because of the genetic relatedness and... and the um, identical twins uh, and half identical twins, and hence altruism survives. And 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 um, as I understand it, as a zoologist, it's because of the altruism that the colony is successful and that the social insects are successful—bees and ants and termites. Why haven't you? alluded to that and suggested that it's the promotion of some sort of altruism or pseudo-altruism which might be good in business management. Uh,
1: Because if you can do
2: that then then the rest will follow, I feel.
1: Why haven't you mentioned that? how would you define, let me ask you how you would define before you, uh, how would you define what would be an evidence of altruism in the hive, as you would define it?
2: The, the, the um, preparedness of, of workers to, to to sting and risk their, well, to risk their lives oh, in, in defense of the colony.
1: Right. Uh, yes, there is quite a bit of uh, sacrifice. You know, I have never, I, I will have to say that I've read a Thousands of articles i have never seen one that actually addresses altruism within the within the beehive so it 's t-
2: total total loyalty to the, to, the, to the colony and i 'm sorry total total loyalty yeah, to but, up but to the point of death but,
1: but you 're right there is a well you know and to, to some extent uh, you know and maybe maybe it will be corrected you know insect, bees can sting other insects and survive it 's only they, uh, however, they have not adapted yet to stinging mammals. You know, their stinger has is like a harpoon that has a little uh, curve on it, and when uh, these sting uh, mammals, it gets stuck under our skin. So. You know maybe they'll maybe they'll adapt, maybe uh, you know in another hundred million years they'll be able to sting mammals and, and survive, but there is yes, there's quite a bit of sacrifice uh, in the hive, including the drones uh, right I'm, I, I suppose yes. you could call it some some sense of uh, altruism or or goodwill toward the you know the whole i mean they yes. they most yes. definitely are programmed to uh preserve. Uh, to reproduce and and to preserve themselves and to survive. No doubt about that. <coughs> mm, thank you. Yes, ma'am. <coughs> thank you. You've spoken very positively about the bees which is music to my ears as beekeeper but there are certain ruthless practices in the hive that you haven't mentioned. They have no time for the weak and feeble. They're rejected. If somebody's sick, they're thrown out. I hope there aren't any parallels there in management, or are there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I did mention the the larvae that were infected. They do do get thrown out. You know, I actually, in the book, I take a positive spin. There is a very harsh uh, reality uh, in the hive. They do have undertakers It's one of the jobs, right? And that's to uh, throw out uh, bees that are diseased or, or deceased. Uh, but you know what the interesting thing about it is, is that before they actually engage in that, they do a little dance that says, I'm having problems. I have mites or I have something on me. Can somebody groom me? So they do do grooming dances uh, that call other bees to help. So there is this internal... Assistance as well. That so so. I, I guess in the book I chose to uh, to build up. the, You know, uh, help me first uh, before you before you kick me out. Uh, but yeah, there, there are some brutal aspects to to the beehive. But I do think the expectation is to you know for a bee is to uh, their expectation is for it to live. You know, on average, the full six weeks, uh, uh, you know, a healthy life. But if, if it comes to the point where they are diseased and it would threaten the life of the hive, then they do, in fact, take, take the kinds of actions that you're suggesting. Yeah. Yes, sir.
2: Um, have you considered other insects, like um, wasps or... Um Yellow
1: jackets? Uh, no, I, uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't, only to stay away from uh, yellow jackets. I mean, and the only thing that I, I do discuss in the, in the book, uh, I do talk a little about bumblebees. Uh, because, um, and actually the uh, fellow I talked to this morning, um, uh, Professor Rain, is actually a bumblebee expert and I was asking him this and he concurred and that is uh... honeybees dominate bumblebees and the way they do it is through sheer speed uh... they outmaneuver them uh, and I actually use Zara which I'm a big fan of, of clothing you know when they can create when you can rip off clothes in two weeks and put it on shelves to me that's pretty remarkable uh... but what happens is um, uh, they actually beat the bumblebees to the neck they drain uh, all the nectar before the bumblebees can even get there, and they have greater coverage and so forth so um, so the only the only way I actually introduce another kind of insect into into the book is that honeybees actually are formidable competitors to other insects only because they can quickly find uh, new places to harvest and um, and actually go out and force to, to do it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you said that if there was a bit of time, you would explain a bit more about the dance, the waggle dance. Uh, yes. Could, could you s- tell us a bit is more anybody, about it? Uh, can anybody actually do it? Uh, <laughs> you're a beekeeper. You can do the dance. <laughs> yes, everything is... Um, Everything is done on the vertical in the hive. You know, so the comb is vertical. Straight up on the comb represents the sun. So all right? So, um, uh, <laughs> so, so straight up is the sun, all right? And then uh, what happens is they start their dance at a particular place relative to straight up. So let's say they start the dance here. What they do is they cut across this hypothetical line, which is the, the vertical. Uh, they do a little waggle, by the way, in the middle. And they go counterclockwise along, and stopping at the same spot that they started at. And they do it again. And then this this time, they go clockwise. So this, what they're telling them is that this angle, between the vertical and where they cross the line, When you leave the hive, go 60 degrees, for instance, to the right of the sun. That's the direction you need to go in. So straight up is representing the sun. They're telling each other what angle to go at when they leave relative to the sun. The waggle tells them how far to go. The waggle actually is more of a rate because it actually takes into account things like wind condition and environmental circumstances. So on two given days, let's say a bee is traveling from this point to here, one day uh, it, may be, it may convey a further distance because let's say there's a headwind. So they take that into account. So the waggle actually is more of a, a rate rather than purely a distance. And the number of circles that they do, the, the clockwise and counter, clockwise tells the bees how good it is so you're told the angle what angle from the sun you need to go in you're told how far to go and you're told how good it's going to be when you get there (laughs) it's pretty amazing uh carl von frisch won the nobel prize by uh figuring that that little tidbit out but it's a, it's a succinct, a very succinct communication signal. So I mean, I, for the most part, bees keep, it, bees keep it simple, which I think is always a good thing in organizations, too. Try to keep it simple. Yes, sir. Um. Uh, does
2: the uh, B model analogy apply to all type of businesses or it
1: might be uh, apply, um, applicable more to certain type of businesses? What, what I mean is an engineering firm and a law firm and a diary firm
2: are, have different scopes and different organisations. Do the, does the analogy apply to all of them or it applies more to one of them?
1: Uh, that's a good question. and. Um you know I would have to say that I really haven't contemplated that in in any sufficient depth uh, what I have done though is thought about ways that certain aspects of the bees can apply to a certain you know kinds of operations so I had consulted to a uh, call center not too long ago and I said we're going to use one measure to rearrange sort of labor, and that is when uh, a forager bee uh, brings nectar back to the hive, there are receiver bees there to collect the nectar. It's the receiver bees then that mix in some enzymes, transform the nectar to honey, and then go store it into the comb. Uh, It's the speed with which the forager can find a receiver that tells them whether or not the labor force is appropriately divided. So if, the, uh, if they find a receiver bee right away, then they need, the, then they need more foragers. They, they can accommodate more foragers. And so they call from a reserve, come on, you know, you know come on, we, we need you. So for the call center, I said, I think to reposition your work, what we're going to do is how long, you know, how long a call will wait? How long does a caller have to wait? So, but beyond that, so, you know, I think I can, you can pick and choose certain things that might apply to different kinds of businesses, but I'd be hard-pressed to say that everything that I've discussed uh, about these would uniformly, you know, always apply to every aspect of a business. <coughs>
0: One last question up there. Yes, sir. You mentioned about the mistakes that the B community would like to take, and they decide which mistakes they would like to do. So who will decide on these mistakes that they would like to do it and take the risk of these mistakes? And do B community would, would learn from their mistakes so their future, they, they can take that so they will not do that mistake again as the same community, or, or it has to happen after, like, six weeks, there's a new community, and they might do the same mistake
1: again? Uh, yes. Okay. So um, – Wow, that's a lot of questions. One is um, uh, they actually, to, to avoid some mistakes, they do, avo- they do uh, get involved with what I would call uh, self-learning. So for instance, they do these experiments where uh, there's a, uh, like a wheel that rotates, and they have like fake flowers on some of them, and one of them has a real nectar in it. And the bee flies to where the real nectar is. But then while the bee is there, they, they turn the wheel. So um, and, and the idea is that the bee will have to come back to where it is, not where it was. And so what the bees do is they do this corkscrew uh, flight to learn to say, all right, it's not where it was. It's over here. When I come back, this is the spot I'm coming to. So there is this self-learning that goes on within the hive. Uh, With regard to, I have two more things, with regard to, and I think it's very interesting by the way, with regard to the foragers and the receivers, the foragers are always making the decision. They actually have, they actually know what the outside world is like, they know what, how many receivers are involved, receivers never have anything to say whatsoever about how to reposition the workforce. And I actually think, you know, when I think about applications to business is that you want really what you want to do is maximize your revenue and you want people, you want the people who are aware of what's going on making those decisions. I think the receivers would be, oh, you know, we're really busy right now. We can't, we can't really build too much more comb, you know, so, you know, and so-and-so's out, you know. Uh, so we can only accommodate, you know, so much. They don't want that. The foragers control that conversation. In terms of what mistakes they make, uh, the, they actually have the same kinds of issues that businesses have. They have resource allocation problems. Um, uh, comb is very expensive in terms of energy to make. Uh, it actually uh, it's made from sugars the wax is made from sugars from honey, uh, and it has to be heated, thermoregulated. So that's a lot of energy, and uh, they don't want. And what what bees do not want to do is build too much honey when times are bad, or build too little when times are good. So that's the mistake they don't want to make. And so what they've chosen instead is they have a variable threshold that they use. So if times are good, the threshold is the comb does not have to be that filled for them to start building. If times are bad, then the comb has to be pretty filled for them to start building. Because the mistake that they would rather make is we'd rather overbuild if times are good and underbuild if times are bad. So those are the kinds of mistakes. you know. So That they, you know, how they ever how they arrived at that is a hundred million year old question. But, but that's how they protect themselves. They they just don't a mistake in the hive is death. So you know, so they really do want to be. They really are a risk averse bunch for the most part. Great. Well, hello. uh, Thank you all. Okay.
2: I heard that uh, occasionally, bee attacks other beehives. Why should it be, if it is such a uh, magnanimous insect, why should, should they attack somebody else in order to steal their honey?
1: Yes, they do steal each other's um, honey sometimes, but it's usually not a big problem. If, uh, if, the, um, if, the, uh, if the honey is flowing very well, first of all, they, they won't. Uh, they don't even care, by the way. If the honey is flowing, then they'll let anybody in. Pretty much, there's very few guard bees. If if uh, if times are really tight, then the guard bees will, will keep out others. But for the most part, they're not trying to raid each other. They're actually all out trying to find nectar. So the issue of raiding each other is not a tends not to be a very big issue in the hive. But it does happen, but not to not to a great extent. Not to yeah.
0: Great, well, thank you all uh, for your questions. Um, before we go, I have a uh, the, we're actually not finished yet um, but there is something I need to ask of you when we do finish tonight if you could all please stay seated until uh, Michael has left so that we can get him out to the lobby and get him set up so that he can meet all of you uh, after the event before that, however, just uh, we have actually a surprise for you, Michael. Um, in addition to our uh, Nobel laureates, we also have LSEBs. Um, <laughs> and there are some students who've come along tonight uh, who would like to present you with a little present. Uh, so, in April of this year, LSE welcomed two urban beehives to a rooftop in Passfield Hall. So you can see pictures of some of them here. Um, we're now one of the first university halls of residence with its own bees. Next year, we hope to each hive will produce between 50 and 100 pounds of honey, which the school aims to sell and donate any proceeds back into sustainability projects in halls of residence. As the LSE bees are new colonies, most of the honey has been left and will be used to see them through this winter. So in September, we harvested just a little bit of honey to taste. And here, Untush and Nikki have one of those jars, <laughs> <laughs> which we present to you on behalf of LSE staff and students. Um, and thank you for uh, raising awareness about the importance of peace. Thank you very much. You. And, and that might be small, but in central London, that's, that's about 100 pounds worth. <laughs> well, you know, there
1: is there's no other honey like this in the world. It's true. This is, a, this is a signature of a place. There's no other honey that's exactly like this.
0: Thank you. Great. Thank, you Thank you, guys. All right. Well, thank you again to all of you for coming tonight. Uh, let's thank Michael one more time, and. If you-